Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris. Hey, how's it going, Rachel? I'm so excited because you know what's coming up, what's right around the corner. It's almost here. ATIA. You know, you know that's what I'm talking about. It's going to be super, super fun. Um, there, I don't know if you know this, but today there was a huge announcement that just rocked the world of assistive technology. Did you hear about it? You probably no. haven't heard about it. No. So, so um, you know we've talked about the company Texthelp before, and that is the company that puts out a product called Read and Write for Google Chrome. We've talked about it on the podcast. We've talked about how you've uh, you needed to learn about it and shared some of it with one of your clients. Remember all that? I. I do remember I that was that was a pivotal moment for me because now I use that all the time. So their number one competitor is a uh, company called Don Johnston. Now Don Johnston is, has uh, similar products with um, stuff that does word prediction, stuff that does text to speech. They also um, have some products called First Author, and they do a lot in the literacy space, right? But here's the thing: these two are like. The, the Coke and Pepsi of the of the of text to speech and word prediction and and beyond and they were always sort of you know which one which 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 are you gonna go with are you gonna go with read and write or are you gonna go with snap and read you know are you gonna go with read and write or are you gonna do with co-writer universal and and beyond right um, they merged they merged today the 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 I got an email I actually got a, a message from the vendor that uh, like my rep. Uh, Jeff is the guy that I've known for years. And Jeff wrote me, he's like, Chris, can we hop on a call later today? I got just 15 minutes. I got stuff I got to share. And I was like, oh, what's this? Like, what is this? So maybe he wants to get together before ATIA or something. No, it was these two um, huge companies in the world of assistive technology merging into one. So at ATIA, Rachel, I, I found out today that they're going to have a little like hug it out, like, um, uh, you know, sip champagne, I guess, you know, like clink the glasses, the, like a big event is to, uh, to commemorate the joining of these two, these two powerhouse forces. And it's going to help so many kids and so many, like lessen the confusion, you know, the, as a, what I heard right now is that the products are staying the same. So it's not like, well, I, does that mean I'm going to lose a product or anything right now? No, all that's going to stay the same. We'll see how things flesh out in the future. But, uh, so that is just, just one thing to look forward to at ATIA, that sort of event where they're going to be celebrating the merger of these two companies. And that's just, there's so much more. It's uh, uh, it's just such a great event. Chris, I've never been to ATIA before, which I know like is shocking probably to our listeners. They're like, oh, what? <laughs> I'm really excited because I know you go every year and I've never been. So this is like, a, I'm a first timer. Well, I'll tell you, one of my favorite events, yeah, you're definitely going, I'm telling you right now, I'm taking you, you're not allowed not to say no. Um, my favorite event is on Friday afternoons, uh, like when I say Friday afternoons, like Friday evening, um, there's something called Ed Camp. And Ed Camp is, have you ever been to an Ed Camp or an Ed Camp style sort of event? Do you know what I'm talking about yes. there? Yes, yes. But for our listeners who don't know. Let me explain. So you show up at this given time and the uh, the in a given place, and they the way it works at uh, Ed Camp at uh, ATIA is out in the hallway outside of this these number of rooms. Um, Mike Murata posts a board. Uh, him and Karen Janowski and a couple others help organize it every year. Who are you know co-authors of Inclusive Learning 365 at Tech Strategies every day of the year. Um, do we have like a little ding, like a little button we can hit whenever I 
There we go. <laughs> I'll be it for you. <laughs> so outside um, the rooms, we have, um, they put up these big boards and it, Mike just takes tape and he makes a grid. And then there's literally Sharpies and uh, thumbtacks and index cards. And you write different topics down on those index cards. So for instance, if I wanted to talk about the specific language system first approach, I'd write that down and I slap that up on the board, right? If we wanted to talk about uh, the importance of motor planning, we'd do that, right? And of course, the AAC agreements, if you go back and listen to those episodes, that was born out of EdCamp um, Ed, Ed Camp and ETIA. So uh, you never know what you're going to get. And then what you do is you look at the board and you go, oh, what am I interested in? Ooh, that sounds interesting. And you go and you sit in that in that room. And um, I love how Mike explains it. He says there's uh, the, the number one rule of Ed Camp is the rule of two feet. So if you're sitting there um, or two wheels or however you want to move. Um, but if you don't like it, you can get up and you can leave. You don't have to stay in the in the experience if you're not that if it's not working for you, you can always leave. And he just kind of gives everybody that out, you know, so that like, yeah, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be. I can go someplace else. Uh, there's no hard feelings. You're just having and then you're sitting around having a conversation. It's not a presentation. It's a conversation. Uh, and it's my favorite. It's my favorite event of the entire conference, let alone all the other structured stuff that happens. But that is um, something you got to go. You got to go. I'm sorry. You're you're not allowed not to go, Rachel. You got to come. I'll be there. I'm excited. Um, can I can I contribute an idea? Like, how does that work? Yeah, you just write it down on the you write it down on you use the sharpie, write it down on the index card, slap it up on the board, and then you're there. And then when everyone um, gets together at that time, and you know, in the room at that time, you go, well, I wrote it on the card. Um, you don't even have to, by the way, if you don't want to, but you could start off and go. So I wrote it on the card. This is what I wanted to talk about. Um, can we have a discussion around it? And, and that's usually how they start is like, well, who wanted to, why, why did you all show up to this topic? You know, why did you find it interesting? And then the conversation rolls from there. I feel like that would be a great podcast recording. <laughs> I'm just imagining you and I sitting with a, a recorder <laughs> like, hey, you guys mind if this is on the podcast? <laughs> It's funny you say that. I've never recorded at EdCamp ATIA, but I have recorded other EdCamps for um, like the old AT Tips cast and other other events like that. So uh, yeah, it would be it would be great. Um, sometimes there's like a lot of side chatter and there's a lot of you know like whispering to each other. I mean, who knows how it'll be this year with the uh, um, you know social distancing and masks and um, uh, and and all of that with the pandemic. But um, uh, I'm still I'm super stoked to uh, to go and enjoy that experience. And then, of course, there's other stuff. What else are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to our pre-conference, Chris. <laughs> I mean, we're going to be together. This is the first time we're going to be presenting a, our pre-conference talk live in person. So we've done it numerous times virtually. But this is going to be really exciting for me. I, I don't know what it's going to look like. If I have any indication based on ASHA, you're going to be running all around with your microphone just getting everybody to participate, and I'm excited for that. Well, the pre-conference, chances are, will be have uh, uh, lower numbers than we had at ASHA, right? We had probably had 150 people in that room at the ASHA conference. So, And it's a six-hour event, not a one-hour or 45 minutes or whatever ASHA was. Um, so I'm a little bit like, you know, a little more sedate and with less people, you know, you can have much more intimate conversations, you know, and really get to to learn about their um, their why they're there and what, they, what their takeaways are, as opposed to coming to sort of a, a canned performance that you and I have uh, put 
together. I mean, of course, we'll have our um, the the points we want to talk about, but um, and the points we want to make, and the whole pre-conference will be structured. But that's say we can always deviate to give people what they need when we have those sorts of um, uh, a more intimate space. So, and then, like you said too, this is a super exciting is that. Yeah, so we've presented together now. We can cross that off our bucket list for um, a one-hour, most like was it a one-hour session at ASHA, um, but never six hours. So that's a new, it's a new thing. We'll have to cross that one off the list. I'm looking forward to it. So, Chris, people can still sign up. When you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you listen to it as soon as it airs. <laughs> I think you're a, a super fan of Talking With Tech, so as soon as that episode drops, you go, you're on it. Um, you can still sign up for our pre-conference at ATIA. If you're not able to join us for the pre-conference, still come say hello at ATIA. We're going to be there. We're excited always to meet Talking With Tech fans. So um, if you see us, don't hesitate to say hi. Uh, Rachel, tell us about the interview today. So... I did an interview with uh, Jennifer Eaton and Mariah Half. They are two BCBAs who have an ABA company in uh, Southern California. And, you know, ABA, Chris, has been this hot topic. Um, you know, we're hearing a lot from autistic adults about how uh, traumatizing ABA has been. And I've been really curious about questioning what I know about a ABA, what I, you know, think about ABA. I've been really just like trying to get information. And, um, I thought why not have, uh, you know, two BCBAs come on the podcast and ask them the questions that I've been thinking about. And, um, I had the pleasure of talking to these two ladies and it was a really amazing conversation. Um, I think that ultimately there's a small percentage of, ABA providers that are, you know, doing the right kind of ABA. Um, and I think that these two ladies are an example of that. Um, and so I realized that, you know, not every experience that we have with ABA professionals is like the one that Mariah and Jen and I talk about. Um, but um, I asked a lot of hard hitting questions to them and they had a lot of really great responses. So I'm excited to share the interview that I did with them um, and continue the conversation. I feel like it's not something where we just have someone on the podcast and then we stop. Um, I really am you know, really interested in figuring out how to um, approach this because a lot of the work that I do is with ABA therapists. Um, you know, whether I like it or not, um, that's what families are deciding. And, you know, I have to, in some level, support, you know, an individual that's working 40 hours a week with my student to help support communication in AAC. Um, and I realize that it's an area where a lot of BCBAs and, and you know, ABA professionals disagree with speech language pathologists, um, you know, just kind of the way that we approach communication, I think is very different in a lot of ways. Um, although it doesn't have to be. And I think this conversation that I had really exemplifies that. Um, but again, I realize this is kind of maybe more the exception to the norm. Um, I have a lot of great experiences working alongside of, um, ABA teams, also some not so great ones, which I share on the, the recording. Um, but I'm, I'm really interested in continuing the conversation and would love to hear your guys' thoughts um, after you listen to the episode. So without further ado, here's the interview I did with Jennifer Eaton and Mariah Half. Are you enjoying this episode? We would love for you to take a few minutes to hit the subscribe button so you always know when we release new content. Even better, 
If you leave us a review on iTunes, then more people will find this podcast and learn about AAC. We also love reading your reviews on air. Thank you so much for your support. We love this community. Now we can head back into the episode. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mado, joined today by Jennifer Eaton and Mariah Half. Ladies, I'm super excited to have you guys here. So excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here too. Yes. Okay. So start off by just kind of introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about yourselves. Do you want to go first, Mariah? Sure. Uh, My name's Mariah. I'm a behavior analyst that was born and raised in New York and then made my way out here to California. And that's where I met the lovely Miss Jennifer Eaton. And we worked together for a couple of years and just stayed in communication. And we just kind of talked about how ABA could be done differently. And with our backgrounds, both being in New York, we decided to start our company Rooted in Play. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, we, Mariah was actually my supervisor for a while and um, I had just graduated college and I was working and I decided that I was too young to work full time and I needed to live abroad. So I moved to Spain for a couple of years, um, knowing that I ultimately wanted to do the BCBA route. So the only thing that could get me back was getting accepted to a master's program. And so I got accepted. I ended up moving to New York while Mariah was still in California. So we literally switched coasts. Um, But again, we always stayed in contact and talked. And then when I was moving home, we decided that we wanted to kind of start this journey together. And we just celebrated six years. So things are going well. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. And you guys are located where? We're primarily in Orange County. So we're primarily in all of Orange County um, for the most part. Yeah. Yes. And so I'll give a little backstory. So I know you ladies because we collaborated on a case together um, and I had such an amazing experience with you guys. Um, really, I remember, you know, doing a lot of coaching sessions with I you guys. <laughs> uh, we spent a lot of time on Zoom together before Zoom was even a thing. Remember? Yeah, like, that's pandemic. right. Pre-pandemic. <laughs> exactly. And I just remember I definitely said it numerous times, but I thought it even more, you guys, the way you model language on an AAC system and facilitated language opportunities um, was, you know, exactly the way a speech language pathologist does. Um, and so I had such an amazing experience collaborating with you guys. And so part of the reason I asked you to come on the podcast today was because, you know, I, there's, there's this disconnect with, you know, speech language pathologists and ABA therapists or BCBAs. And, you know, uh, it's at some point we're kind of at odds with the approach we take to communication and language development, um, the way in which we get kids to learn how to communicate. Uh, oftentimes we get people who are listeners of this podcast writing to us saying like, ABA is trying to do this thing, but I want to do this thing. Um, and so I thought, you know, okay, I have a really good relationship with you guys. And we've had, you know, collaborations in the past on other cases. Um, Let's kind of like figure out how can we get along and hopefully this conversation can, you know, inspire other, you know, listeners who are listening, whether they're BCBAs or speech language pathologists um, to figure out how we can kind of coexist and help each other in the work that we're doing. Because ultimately we're all trying to serve the clients that we work with, right? Like we all get into these helping professions because we ultimately want to help the students that we serve. Um, And so how can we all kind of get along and support each other and be collaborative? 
Yeah. I think that the whole team approach is really the best approach. And, and just to kind of piggyback off of what you said, as far as our collaboration, you know, we were really lucky in that we, we got to learn from you. Um, you know, you were there coaching us. And so that gave us that direct experience to be able to implement it based on the way that you would do it while also tying in what we were working on as far as our programs and goals. And it just worked, it just clicked. It just, just did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So we were lucky in that sense, but I agree. I think as far as the collaboration piece and the need for that, that piece to kind of be stronger, it really is a whole child approach when you get everyone on board, right? When you have speech buy-in, when you have OT buy-in, when you have ABA buy-in, and ultimately at the end of the day, we're all here to serve the same role, the same function. It's to help the child be the best that they can possibly be. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I'm always thinking about like what made it different with us than it is perhaps with another SLP and another BCBA that are trying to, you know, work together. Um, Do you have any insight into why it was successful between us and our collaborations? Well, I think when Jen and I started our company, we started it with a whole team model going in, not just us as the providers, but training our staff and working with other professionals to really make sure that the whole team was able to implement everything that we were hoping to teach. So I think just the openness and the willingness to listen and, you know, put what you think is best on the back burner and maybe open your mind to something different. I think that's really what makes the difference. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. And I think that I'm kind of the same way. Like, I feel like I go into every new meeting and collaboration, really curious about how I can help support whatever it is that the other, you know, team members are doing. Um, I think oftentimes we come in with this laser focus on our goals and our, you know, treatment and our treatment plan and all of these things. And, you know, if we open up our perspective to, okay, like, how can I use this as an opportunity to teach what I'm, you know, trying to target and what I know um, about, you know, my specific discipline, um, but also how can I learn from what you guys do and from what you're working on? Um, and so I think it takes that reciprocity um, to have that kind of collaboration. And it takes kind of knowing from the start, that's how you're, you know, entering into a collaborative uh, you know, situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as Maria said, as far as like, we started this with the idea of the whole team, team approach, I see it as an opportunity for personal growth for ourselves as well, in order to help the client further. So I may not have had this direct experience previously, but we're going to learn it because this is what the client needs. And therefore we're going to implement it based on the way that we're taught to do it or the way that's best for the client. Um, I mean, and sometimes Ryan, I will say like, I don't know what hat I'm wearing right now. I don't know if I'm a BCBA right now. I don't know if I'm doing speech right now. I'm doing all of it right now. And I think that that's what makes it so great is that if you can take all of these disciplines and find a way to combine them so that the child is getting the best possible approach and all while being playful and fun and silly at the same time and making sure that that rapport is strong and stays strong, it just makes for a really great learning opportunity for, for the, for the learner. Yeah. And also for the adults too, because you kind of mentioned like, you know, this is an opportunity for growth. And for myself, especially when I was a younger clinician, I was so hungry 
to learn from people outside of my discipline. I was like, oh yes, OT, like teach me everything you know. Yes, behavior. I'm having all these behaviors in my session. Like, what do I do? You know, and I think that curiosity is, um, you know, really important to expand your mind and expand not only about what, again, you're focused on, but thinking more holistically. And that's how true collaboration can really happen. Yeah. I agree. I was the same way when I was, teach me this, teach me that, teach me this. I'll do, I'll do it all. I'll find a way to make it behavior and like, I'll find a way to make it tied to the speech goals. I don't know, but I was exactly the same way. Whatever was, whatever was offered to be, you know, taught to me, I was right there on the, the, you know, at the front and center wanting to learn it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And as a BCBA, we're always doing CEUs and we're always looking to improve our practice and do things a little better. And what better way to do that than to learn from other professionals? Yeah. Yeah. We had that unique experience where I was able to do some coaching with you guys and, um, you know, you guys were super open and willing and took, I took everything I said, you were like sponges and like really implementing it. So it was just like a beautiful experience. Um, what would you say, because unfortunately not everybody has this beautiful experience that we've had, right? right. Um, what would you say when, you know, you're up against someone who is quite rigid, right? They're not open there. I have a certain way that I do things. This is the way that I see success. Um, you know, do you have any, you know, advice or recommendations for when someone you know, isn't collaborative? Like, what do you do in a situation where you're like, I'm really open, but it doesn't feel like you are. I find asking questions kind of help opens that other person up. If that person's particularly rigid, they have a lot of information probably. So if I start off by asking questions and opening that line of communication and getting them talking, then it can be easier for me to kind of sneak in what I want to say too. Um, you know, same with our kids. A lot of our kids are rigid. What do we do with them? Well, we systematically shape the behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think too, like asking them to share specifically what it is that their idea entails and finding a way to kind of tie that into what I think would be a collaborative experience, right? Okay. So share with me specifically what you want to achieve. What are your goals for this? How do you want to get there? What does the outcome look like to you? Right. Okay. So now we have all these shared ideas in mind and now how can we come together to use these different strategies to make sure we get the best possible outcome? Because not, it's not a one size fits all approach. Sometimes there are days where we're trying certain things and I think it's going to be awesome. And I'm completely thrown on the floor and I'm like, got to try plan B, got to try plan C. And I think that the reality of this career, like this career, not just even our discipline is that there being rigid is difficult because they're not, they're not, there is not always one right answer. And I think for us, we're constantly trying to strive to figure out what works the best. And so we may not have the answer, but we will try extremely hard to figure it out, you know, as best as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just being open and, you know, honest and transparent with, with people that are, tra- that maybe are a little bit rigid about that um, and tying in what they would like as well so that we can have the best possible experience together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious because one of the challenges that I run into in my own practice is um, we kind of, so ABA traditionally and speech therapy specifically with AAC, um, we kind of have different approaches with 
prompting. So, um, you know, I feel like ABA generally follows a uh, most to least prompting hierarchy, so a more errorless learning. Um, and then, you know, for AAC, we know that we have to systematically fade our level of prompting. So perhaps give some more upfront prompting and scaffolded support, but fade that so that we don't have kids that are super prompt dependent because oftentimes what happens is, you know, a child just, you know, learning how to imitate or they're just following a model on an AAC system and we're doing kind of more errorless learning. Um, but you know, that oftentimes results in kids that are very prompt dependent and waiting for us to tell them what to say, uh, waiting for us to model on their device so that they can repeat it back to us. Um, so what would you say to how we're kind of at odds with that prompting? Um, and, and, you know, as BCBAs, do you ever adopt a least to most prompting hierarchy? Because a lot of times what I've heard is like, oh, that's not the way we do things in ABA. Um, it's very much like shut down. And I'm like, let me tell you about the least to most prompting hierarchy. Here's how we get more independent, you know, spontaneous, autonomous communication. And it's like, shut down. Like, we don't do that. Um, so one, do you guys do that? Is that like a fallacy that someone's just using? Like ABA doesn't do this. And then, you know, kind of talking about what that looks like and how to like balance those two things. I think that's so funny because I could see people being like, no, I'm shutting that down. But actually, I think it's the opposite. I think that, well, and it's, it's individualized, right? It's case by case. But mm -hmm. for the most part, it's about meeting your learner where they're at. Mm -hmm. and giving them the prompt based on where you feel that they're at. If they need less prompting, then you start with less prompting. If they need more, then you give them what they need. Um, I don't think it's a one size approach. And I don't think that you always have to start with most to least at all. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that maybe are harder for learners that maybe you would use most to least, but the goal is always, always, always to fade to get to that independence as well, because everything that we teach, we teach so that they can be independent and generalize it without having the need to be prompt dependent on us. Mm -hmm. So I actually don't agree with that. I think that it depends on your learner, what you're teaching and what they need in that moment. Yeah. A lot of, um, a lot of what ABA does too, is we will teach certain things that expect a response, but language doesn't always expect a response. It needs to be spontaneous. So in order to teach spontaneity, you need to fade yourself back so that that child has the opportunity to be spontaneous. Mm -hmm. I mean, how would you feel if every time you went to open your mouth to say something, someone cut you off and prompted you to say something different? It's not what I want to say. Leave me be. Give me 10 seconds to figure out what I want to say. So I feel like with language, it's a little different. We have to really look at that. What is expected in the language complex and, and meet the learner where they're at. And I think sometimes like maybe for some ABA practitioners, I, I agree with what Mariah just said, but I think sometimes with some ABA practitioners, like they think that they constantly have to be doing something all the time. Like, let's go, go, go. We have to do this, 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 and this, and this. And maybe there's a time and a place for that. I don't know. I don't know every child in the world or ABA practitioner in the world, but a lot of the times when you step back and you wait for some certain responses, you get a lot of silly language and a lot of playful language and a lot of, you know, silly questions and comments. Um, I played memory with a kiddo today and I couldn't believe the amount of comments that were coming out of him just from playing without me saying anything to him. There was no prompting needed. It was just all of this spontaneity. And we live for that. Like, I love that. It was so exciting. And I looked at mom and I'm like, do you hear what's happening? This is fantastic. And I think like for Mariah and I, we have a very similar affect and approach like that. Like we are so 
so proud when the smallest of moments happen, the biggest of moments happen. And so we, we want our learners to be independent. We want them to be successful. We want them to be able to communicate at whatever level that may be. Um, but we also want them to be happy and independent and, and, you know, enjoying life to the fullest. Yeah. And finding their voice and giving them the opportunity to let them do that. Yeah. Jen, you mentioned kind of this need to feel like you're doing something all the time, which I feel like is really, really powerful because I think that not only happens with, you know, ABA professionals, it also happens with speech, speech language pathologists, with teachers, with parents. It feels like we constantly have to be showing that we're doing something and showing that like a child is able to communicate. Um, And I think a lot of times that's probably driven by the need for data, um, which you guys are masters, masters at data collection. Right. Um, And I've also heard from other, you know, ABA professionals, Oh, well, we have to do this for, for insurance purposes. Like we need to do this goal for insurance purposes, or we need to do it this way to show you know, through data for insurance purposes. So can you kind of speak to, you know, this drive for the data and maybe for how we can start taking data in ways that open us up to not have to be constantly, you know, doing something or proving something or like, you know, demanding communication. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've heard all of that too. Well, insurance this, and, and that's a whole other ball game and that's a whole other podcast, <laughs> but um <laughs> I think, yes, I think it speaks to probably that, you know, the insurance need and having the data, et cetera. But truthfully, you know, I think for us, at least in our practice, the number one thing that we want to establish always is a very, very strong rapport with a child. And I think oftentimes that rapport is kind of misinterpreted as only being started at the beginning of the conception of therapy, mm-hmm. whereas we feel it's ongoing. And there are many times when we will be doing something and a child will spontaneously say something to me. Um, for example, I had a kiddo, we have a kiddo that was learning emotions and he was not using them very spontaneously. And there was a day that he came to me and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, happy. And all he said was happy. He looked me dead in the eyes. Right. And I got up, I stopped everything I was doing. I put on the, the Pharrell song happy on my phone and we had a dance party. And yes, was I reinforcing his language and his spontaneity? Absolutely. But I think in that moment, I was also showing him that like, Hey, I see your efforts. I am so proud of you. I'm going to show you how proud of you I am. And, and honestly, just genuinely being in the moment with that kiddo, was I taking data? No, I was having a dance party and it was far more important. Um, and I think when it comes to the rigidness of like the data collection and the insurance and this, there, there's a time and a place for that. And I think, you know, as long as you're taking, at least for us, some behavior data gets recorded that day, then maybe in your session note, you know, that it was a day that needed stronger rapport because this child presented with this or with this, um, you can kind of, with the insurance model, kind of fall on that and give the description as to why this was necessary for that session. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. What do you think, Maria? Yeah, I feel like it's, there's so much pressure to constantly be focused in doing everything that you possibly can. And yes, we are up here. It may not look like it right here, 
on the outside, but up in my brain, I've got 50,000 things going on. But there's also that time and place to look at the kiddo and say, you know what? You've been working your tail off for the past hour. We're going to take a five minute break. We're going to curl up with a book. I'm going to give you some foot massages. I'm going to cuddle you and we're just going to take a little break. And that's what you have to do to maintain the rapport so that when you come back the next day, that child's like, let's go, let's have fun. Let's learn some more stuff because they see that you give that give and take. It's not constant, constant pushing because if somebody constantly pushed me, I'd push back. Yeah. I also think there's this need for like the continuation to keep going, 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 because in our field, we're always being watched. Um, whether it's by speech therapists, BCBAs, teachers, caregivers. Um, I think that with time and experience, you care less about that because it just is part of the job and you don't need to be putting on a show. You just need to do what you're good at. And if that means that day that you take a step back, because that's what the child needs and you take a step back. Um, if that means they're more available for learning that day, then you do more that day. And it's a balance. That's why whenever we come to a session, we check in, how did they sleep? How did they eat? How is their stomach? Are they tired? Are they sick? And all of these settings events give us clues as to what we're going to accomplish that day. Mm -hmm. If I come into a session with a kiddo that's been on vacation for five days, um, and on top of it, he was sick. And on top of it, there's a worldwide pandemic. I'm probably going to be a little bit more relaxed that day. Um, Because if you think about it from your own perspective, when you come off of a vacation, what do you want? I want a vacation from my vacation. Yeah. So (laughs) I'm hungover from my vacation. I need time to like calm down. Yeah. I'm sounding on jet lag. (laughs) Yeah. Jet lag. You're tired. You want to go back. You don't want to be where you are. So I, we really try to think of our learners as like, what would I, what would I need in this moment? You know? And at the end of the day, these are children that we're working with. Like, let them be little, let them play, Mm -hmm. let them have fun. Um, and, and make learning as silly as possible because that's how children learn naturalistically, right? If they weren't in a therapeutic setting, they would just learn these things naturally. So we really strive to find that balance. Have we perfected it? No, but we work really, really hard at it every day. Mm -hmm. I also think that, you know, in my own experience, it's really helpful for me when I'm working with perhaps coaching an ABA team. Um, Oftentimes I'm working with, you know, BIs and they're like, I'm just following the programs. Like I'm just doing what I'm told by my boss. Um, And I'm like, that's okay. And oftentimes there's kind of some um, hesitance because they're like, I was told to target this program in this specific way. And so it feels like there's not really ways for me to kind of help like infiltrate because they had set up programs in specific ways. Um, So in situations like that, I find that coaching ABA um, or all educators for that matter, um, what about those moments in between, like those in-between moments where we can just like not be doing a program and we can just be playing or cuddling or, you know, all of those moments are really rich for language opportunities. And so, you know, from my own experience, if I'm kind of getting some pushback from helping coach you know, within certain programming, um, at the very least, I can kind of coach communication partners and BIs and, you know, ABA specifically on moments that aren't so structured. Um, and I think a lot of times, um, you know, there's so many opportunities there and, you know, we take for granted the fact that 
in a given day, think about all the downtime that we're not doing structured things. Like we could be, you know, teaching communication partners what to do in that space. And it's oftentimes more motivating too, like than the specific numbers program or letters program or whatever program is being run. And so I think just from my own experience, having those downtime moments are really great opportunities for me to be like, Oh, like, let me teach you about making choices or giving choices or modeling, or, you know, setting up the expected routine with language that he really loves to swing. Let's focus on that, you know, um, things like that. Well, if you think about it from your own personal, you know, life, where do we enjoy communication the most and things that we like to do? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where I'm the most chatty. Um, and I think that if you kind of think of it from that perspective, and like you said, those are really language rich opportunities and you don't have to require or demand or expect, you can just be present and model Mm -hmm. and show them, you know, perhaps this is what I would say in this moment and just comment, right. Read a book without expectation because, you know, and I think this was you, Rachel, that shared it with me and Uh, forgive me if I misspeak, but like, you can probably correct me on this one, but the amount of language that a child hears on any given day is about 4,000 words. Yeah. So it's actually, it's the amount of, of hours actually. So I shared that visual. Remember it was like 4,200. I forget exactly the number. Yeah. That's, that's the, the amount of yeah language that a baby hears, um, by a certain age, I think it's like two years or something like that. And it would take like 84 years for a student who is hearing language just modeled on their device twice a week for 30 minutes, which is like a typical speech therapy session, um, just to show the power of, you know, aided language input and how we need to be given modeling for, you know, our students, the same way we give verbal language right. models to all kids developing language. We need to both do that, you know, for our AAC learners too. Yeah. That really resonated with me. And I, and I, I it kind of stays with me because I'm like, okay, that's the amount of language they need to hear in order to produce yeah. verbal or AAC output. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but back to your original question, as far as like the structured approach versus, you know, more of the downtime and those language rich opportunities, I mean, I think I kind of said that. I I think that if you kind of personalize it to yourself, I mean, where do you communicate the most? It's in things that you love to do, you know, put me in a room with a bunch of schnauzers. I'm going to talk for hours. I have two, (laughs) you know? So I think it's fair when you're thinking about your learners, like, again, they're children. These are, these are people like you have to, to normalize this, you know, as far as the way that we would learn language and use language, because it shouldn't be any different for them. And I don't know, the structured idea, like we have a certain goal we have to reach and we have to do this. In our practice, if I knew that somebody was coming to coach and I wasn't going to be there, but an RBT was going to be there, or BI, whomever it was, I would tell them to throw their session agenda out the window and listen to that person and work together. I mean, that's what we would do. I wouldn't let them have an expectation for that day because the expectation is that you guys collaborate on the best ways to implement either our goals, your goals, or our goals, our joint goals. Right. I think that's a really important point to make, Jen, is that as a supervisor, our job is to let our therapists know that we've got this really amazing coach coming in. She's going to help you with these really great ideas. So your job is to listen to this coach and do whatever she tells you to do. I wish you guys were on all my teams (laughs) and I'm sure all of our listeners out there who are like, wow, wouldn't it be nice to have, you know, BCBAs that were like this. (laughs) Well, it's important. I mean, like I said earlier, like sometimes we don't know what hat we're wearing. And I think that that just kind of shows like 
okay, right now I'm working on this goal, but this is speech related, but then we have a sensory need in here. And then, oh, now we have a talk tool. Sure. Let me have that, you know? And it's like, whatever we need to help the child is what we need. And that's that. And I think that as far, if we can all kind of agree on that and find the best ways to implement all of our strategies and ideas, it really just does make, you know, the whole team approach that much stronger. Yeah. And it gives a lot of, um, like confidence in your teammates as well, because when you know that you have a team to back you up, you don't feel so isolated. And I feel like that's one thing that can really be down about this career is you're very isolated in the child's home. It's just you, the kid, and sometimes, you know, grandma or mom and dad. Um, but if you know that you're going to have OT coaching or speech coaching or, um, any other type of, uh, practice coming in, it gives you more chances to really help the kiddo. <laughs>